Amen. Well, please turn now to Isaiah chapter 59. Isaiah chapter 59, where we're going to pick up at verse 14 and read through the end of chapter 60. Isaiah chapter 59, reading from verse 14. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and His glory from the rising of the sun, for He will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. And a Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and His glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around, and see, they all gather together, they come to you. Your son shall come from afar, and your daughter shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nation shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. You shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebal shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. Who are these that fly like a cloud and like doves to their windows? For the coastland shall hope for me, the ships of Tarshish first, to bring your children from afar, their silver and gold with them. For the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel, because He is He has made you beautiful. Foreigners shall build up your walls, and their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. Your gates shall be open continually, day and night they shall not be shut, that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste." The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, and the pine, to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. 
The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despise you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated with no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age. You shall suck the milk of nations, you shall nurse at the breast of kings, and you shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold, and instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stones, iron. I will make your overseers peace and your taskmasters righteousness. Violence shall no more be heard in your land, devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no, no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. At least one shall become a clan, and the smallest, the least one shall become a clan, and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord in its time. I will hasten it. Amen. Well, one of the things that you're taught in seminary is you learn Greek and Hebrew and the nuances of the biblical text open up before you. One of the things that you're taught is, to put it perhaps a little bluntly, that every translator is a traitor. Now, that's not to undermine your confidence in your English Bibles. Those Bibles that you hold in your hands this morning have been translated and verified and confirmed by some of the best minds and the best scholarship that the church has ever known. Whatever translation you hold this morning, ESV or NIV or NASB or NKJV, whatever it is, I'm willing to bet that it is a faithful translation of the original Scriptures, and you ought to have confidence in what it says. However, we have to realize that in the process of translation, certain decisions have to be made. Not every word has a like-for-like -like equivalent, and so the translator has to make the decision as to how best to convey the thought that is contained in the original language. Not all of our pronouns are gendered, and not all of them differentiate between singular and plural, and so the translator has to decide how to communicate who is being talked about and who is talking. But one of the biggest decisions that translators of modern Bibles have to make is where to put the passage breaks and where to put their editorial titles that often accompany those breaks. You understand those paragraph breaks in your Bible are judgment calls on the part of the translator. They have to make a judgment as to where a certain passage, a certain thought, a certain vignette ends, and another one begins. And that can be a hard call, and not all translators and editors will agree. And in fact, Depending on which edition of the ESV you have in your hands, the break in chapter 59 will be different. In fact, the ESV that's in the pews is different from the ESV that's in the pulpit. 
The 2001 edition, which is what we have in our pews, will put the break halfway through verse 15. But if you're using the final edition of the ESV published in 2016, the break is earlier between verses 13 and 14. And of course, there are arguments back and forth. However, I think the ESV revision is correct. And here, between verses 13 and 14, we have the beginning of a new passage that is distinct and separate from the warning passages that we have looked at over the last couple of weeks. At verse 14, Isaiah is now beginning something new. He's still trying to shape the hearts and the minds of his readers, but now with verse 14, he's taking a new tack, a new angle, a new approach. I remember we are in this section where Isaiah is training the newly converted exiles into how they are to live now that they've been reconciled to God through faith in Christ, Isaiah's servant of the Lord. Having evangelized them and proclaimed to them the hope of the gospel for unworthy sinners like them, having invited them to renounce their sin and and be reconciled to God, Isaiah is now, in our terminology, discipling them. He's training them in what a life lived in fellowship with God should look like. It's it's what he began right at the beginning of chapter 56, where he gave us the, the overarching principles of the godly life, telling us that that life fundamentally is to be a conscious uh, reflection of the redemption that we have received in Christ. We won't go back over it again, but remember he used as his anchor in chapter 56, the the, the Sabbath, the day that reminds you that God is your creator and God is your redeemer. And in Isaiah 56, giving us the principles of the godly life, he says that is to be the mark of your life, that you live consciously with God as your maker and God as your redeemer. But then you remember, we've seen over the past couple of weeks how he has moved from that to sobering warnings in chapter 57, 58, 59, warning his readers that trying to play with sin while professing devotion to God would very soberingly forfeit salvation. He has warned them not to yield to the temptations that will come to them in their life of discipleship, the temptations to go after other gods, the temptations to yield to the desires of the flesh. And he has warned them soberingly that if they go down those paths, God is not mocked and they will forfeit their redemption. But now, continuing on in this discipleship, in this training up of his readers of what a godly life looks like, Isaiah turns now to a far more joyful topic. He doesn't want to leave them in the despondency of seeing threats all around that he has just warned them of. He wants them to be aware of those threats and temptations, but that's not his final word. He wants to set it all now in its proper context, and particularly in the context of the future hope of complete and total salvation. Isaiah wants the word that he leaves ringing in their ears as he now finishes out the book, goes from here through chapter 66. It's the same theme, same topic that he will just repeat and go over again and again. He wants the thing to be left ringing in their ears, ringing in their hearts, is the 
is the sure and certain knowledge that Christ will make all things new and that a day is coming when we will be free from sin and free from the effects of sin and we will simply be at peace with God in a new and glorious world. But he does it by first, at the end of chapter 59, reminding his readers of just how dire our condition in our sin was. And that perhaps might strike you as an odd way to begin a section that is, future, that is focused on future hope. But one of the running principles that we find in Scripture is that we cannot properly comprehend just how wonderful the gospel is, just how wonderful the love of God is, unless we comprehend just how wicked our sin is and just how desperate our condition was condemned by God in that sin. There's a diagram I've often used. You've, you've seen it. You've heard me talk about it, but I think it's, it's excellent. It's a diagram of a healthy Christian life. And it begins with a line that's going along, just one single line until it comes across the cross. Right? It represents the trajectory of your life. You're going along until you're confronted by the gospel. And you hit that cross and your eyes are opened and your ears are unstopped and your heart is chain, changed. Your, your chains fall off, your heart is free, you rise, you go forth and you follow Christ. But at that point, the line splits. And from that point on, there's two lines that are to mark the healthy Christian life. One that goes up, that as you go on in your Christian life, your understanding of the heights of God's love just gets higher and higher and higher. But the other one, which goes down deeper and deeper, that represents your understanding of the depths of your sin. And the two must go on, higher and higher and deeper and deeper. At the point of your conversion, you do, you grasp the love of God in Christ. And, and you do, you, you grasp the awfulness of your sin. That's why you go to Christ, right? You, you understand that you're a sinner. You understand that, that God is a loving and faithful Savior. And so you run to the cross and you lay hold of Christ and you are saved and it is glorious. But as you go along then, from that point through the next year, the next five years, the next 10 years, the next 30 years, all the way along, your understanding of that gospel is to grow. As you read your Bible, as you listen to sermons, as you fellowship with other believers, as you use the means of grace, the public reading and preaching of Scripture, the prayers of the saints, the administration of the sacraments, as you go along, your understanding of these things builds out, and you see just how amazing the love of God for you in Christ is, but you only properly see it if you're seeing it in the converse, in light of the converse, grasping more of just how ugly and awful your sin and rebellions against such a glorious God is. And really, that's what Isaiah is doing here. 
right? He's going to go on and give us this glorious picture of this, of this future that awaits us, this coming glorious reality. But he is saying here to his readers, you cannot properly grasp what you have been saved to unless you understand what you've been saved from. So beginning this new section, he brings us right back to the beginning of the story. Back to the beginning of the story of the exiles, but, but we could say back to the beginning of the story of the world. What Isaiah is describing here is certainly the situation that Judah had found themselves descended into prior to the exile. Right, we won't go over it again, but we've, we've touched on it the past couple of weeks. It's, it's what is highlighted in the first five chapters of Isaiah, that prologue to the book that sets the whole scene. Judah descended into the situation where there was no righteousness or justice. They had descended into a society where falsehood abounded. Right? Judah, in Isaiah's day, when he went about in Jerusalem preaching, you understand it was a society that descended into a dog-eat-dog world. It was, it was a society that perhaps perfectly encapsulated Lenin's famous question. What was, what was Lenin's question? Who, whom? Who will oppress whom? Right, it's the Marxist, Marxist understanding of how society works. There will always be oppressors, and there will always be the oppressed, and the question that remains is, well, who's going to oppress whom? It was the question that had come into Judah, had woven all the way through. Kill or be killed. Take advantage or be taken advantage of. It was so far from who they were supposed to be, right? They were supposed to be a people marked by the redemption that they had received from God. Having received freely from the hands of God, they were to freely give. Having been shown mercy, they were to show mercy. Having been loved, they were to love. But they had twisted and contorted it all so that they were the polar opposite of who they had been called to be. But of course, it wasn't just unique to Judah. Right? We, we know it in our own society. We may not adhere to the Marxist analysis and certainly to the Marxist solutions to the issue, but, but we know it. It is the posture of the wicked human heart. I must oppress before I am oppressed. I must take advantage of you before you take advantage of me. I have to be on my guard all of the time. And it's, and it's run throughout human history. It's the old story. It's the story of Cain's murder of his brother. It's the story of Adam's blaming Eve for his sin. It's the story of Lamech's song in Genesis 4. Right? What was the song that Lamech sang to his wives? This is how he wanted his wives to conceive of him. Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Lenin would gladly sing that song. It's what made the temptation to go back to that pre-exilic way of life so tempting for these exiles, the temptations that we have just looked at over the last couple of weeks. That is the reflex of our fallen hearts. I must do something to protect my 
self. And the, the built-in propensity of seeing others as fundamentally existing for me instead of the godly instinct of seeing myself as existing for others. But here Isaiah brings his readers face to face with just how dire the situation in sin is. Not only, he says, you have to grasp this, not only does it alienate you from God, it means, verse 17, that in your sin, God stands against you. And not just that, look at how he describes it. God stands against you dressed for battle. The king of kings is arrayed like a warrior to come against you and execute justice and judgment. It's a terrifying picture. It's, it's a Hebrews 10.31 picture. It's a, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Right? We don't have time to go down this avenue, but you think of the armor of God that Paul describes in Ephesians 5. It's this. It's the same armor that he describes, that the church is to, is to clothe themselves with in the, in the, in the campaign against evil. But here Isaiah says that in your sin, this is, this is the clothing that God has in His campaign against evil, in you, against you, in your evil, in your wickedness. Sin presupposes that God is weak or that God does not see or that God does not care. Sin supposes, presupposes that we can rebel against God and trample His law underfoot with impunity. But here the solemn reality comes to bear that in our sin, God is actively opposed to us, a warrior whose vengeance will be known, a king before whom, verse 19, all the world will fall in reverence when they feel the weight of His glory come against them. That's the depth of our sin that we need to reckon with. That's what the exiles needed to see. This is what they had been saved from. It's what they needed to guard against returning to sin, enticing, coming with its, as the proverb says, its lips dripping honey, its smooth words. But Isaiah says, no, this is what you've been saved from. That only leads to judgment. It promises pleasures forevermore, but it only leads to the terrifying wrath of God. But of course, Isaiah is, is setting up the depth of the sin of his readers here so that we can then see, conversely, the heights of God's love. He wants us to see what we've been saved from so we can pro properly grasp what we have been saved to. Right? And that's what he goes on to describe in chapter 60. In contrast to that dark reality of enmity with God and our sin comes this this new glorious picture. It's as if, as if Isaiah opens up a grand vista for us, and he paints this picture of this, of this new world. The picture here in chapter 60 is, is the picture of the people of God freed from the constraints of life in this fallen world freed from the burdens of sin, freed from the burdens of exile, freed from the burdens of evil, freed from the burdens of being small and insignificant in the face of, of domineering cultures. It's what he says in verse 15, you have been forsaken and hated with no one passing through, insignificant, forgotten by the world. But here's this picture of them now exalted, exalted as a city, as a new Jerusalem. That, 
That is a common theme, isn't it, that we see throughout Scripture for describing the people of God. We, we sing of it often. Glorious things of thee are spoken, Zion, city of our God. He whose word cannot be broken, formed thee for his own abode, on the rock of ages founded. What can shake thy sure repose? With salvation's walls surrounded, thou mayst smile on all thy foes. Right, that hymn, I hope you understand, is not about a metropolis. It's not about a city, it's about the church. But the church described using the metaphor of Jerusalem, it's what we see perhaps supremely in Revelation 21. Jerusalem coming down out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. But Christ's bride is not a city. Christ's bride is the church. But we, we get the image, don't we? We understand why this is such a powerful metaphor. Right? Think of Jerusalem, the temple in the midst of Jerusalem, representing the imminent presence of God amongst His people. The temple in the midst of Jerusalem, depicting the presence of the Spirit within the church, which is called in the New Testament, the dwelling place of God on earth. The walls of Jerusalem, depicting the strength and security we have in God. The gates of Jerusalem, depicting not just the security we have from our enemies, though it does represent that, but also the wide invitation to the world to come in with us and revel in the grace of God. Jerusalem standing on Mount Zion, the temple standing on Mount Moriah, depicting the place of honor and supremacy that God gives to the church. That's the imagery that Isaiah dwells on here. Specifically, the picture of the church standing as a city shining out into the darkness with the nations flooding to it. It's an image that, that would have been particularly evocative, I think, for those dwelling in the days of the exile. Really particularly evocative for anybody dwelling in pre-modern times. Right? We are used to traveling whenever we want. Right? You just get in the car and turn on the lights, and night is as day. It may even be better. The roads are quieter. You can travel faster. It's it's a good thing to travel at night. Kids are sleeping. But you understand, before the invention of the electric light, travel at night was a, was a terrifying thing. Right? Travel was dangerous, especially when you got away from civilization. No cell phones, no police force, no help. If you got attacked, you were helpless, just waiting like the man helped by the good Samaritan, just left at the side of the road, dependent on the kindness of passing strangers. And at night, there weren't many of those. If you're walking at night, you travel by the light of the moon, and there really were things that went bump in the night, and it was a scary place to be. And we can imagine a weary traveler Afraid, surrounded, as far as he knows, by enemies on every side, dangers unknown. We can imagine him rounding the corner as he goes through the countryside, and suddenly there's Jerusalem. Not, not glowing, perhaps, like our electric cities radiate into the night, but we can imagine him still seeing on that elevated city the flicker of lamps and windows. 
the flicker of fires and courtyards. And here's this man, afraid, terrified as he goes through the night, and suddenly, safety. A place of refuge. If I can get to those gates, he says to himself, then, then I will be saved. I will be safe, and I can, I can be at rest. And, and, and the picture that Isaiah paints is that of the church no longer in the minority, no longer opposed and persecuted, no longer overlooked and trampled underfoot, no longer suffering at the whims of the wicked. But here's the church standing as the Zion, the city of God, unshakable, built on the rock of ages, surrounded by the walls of God's salvation, standing exalted, secure, and offering refuge to any and all who would make their way to her gates. The image is the darkness of God's judgment lying heavy on the world. God is the warrior king. He's moving against his enemies. The thick darkness of judgment has come to bear on the enemies of God and his people. But here, the church shines into the darkness. And she offers refuge to any and all who would, who would come even to the very ends of the earth, even to, even to Israel's historic enemies, yet the gates are flung open, and the, and the picture is these nations flooding to Jerusalem and not being made to camp outside the gate, but being welcomed in to enjoy the blessings of salvation with the people of God. It's the future that awaits. Isaiah sees masses of people from all over the world coming to the church as if on pilgrimage, not to honor the church itself, but to honor the God who has saved the church and who dwells within His church. It's a picture that anticipates the fulfillment of the covenant that God made with Abraham, Genesis 12. What was it that God said to Abraham? I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's the text Isaiah is preaching in chapter 60. Here is the church, downtrodden, opposed, but turned into a great nation, blessed by God and their name now great, exalted as a city. And in them, all the nations of the earth being blessed by God. This, this picture of a glorious global kingdom of the redeemed who have flooded into the kingdom of God with joy. How different to the lived experience of Isaiah's readers. And here they are languishing in Babylon under the heavy hand of the Babylonians. Even when they return to the physical Jerusalem, it would be such a disappointment. So much so that, that the old man who had seen the glory of Solomon's temple weep when they see the poor imitation of the rebuilt temple. It was a day of small things. But here is this picture painted of a glorious future in which the world would not be against them, but in this day in which the world would come flooding to them. It's a, it's a hope that anchors our souls too. 
It's easy for us to get downtrodden and discouraged. We increasingly live in a day in which there is no social capital associated with being a Christian. The opposite, in fact. Even here, now, in our own little southern communities, being a confessional, conservative, Bible-believing Christian is not something that will help you win friends and influence people. This is a day of seemingly small things. But Isaiah says this is our future. This is where we're going. This is our confident home. This is the context in which we live. Citizens of a new world, pilgrims passing through the trials and sorrows of this present world with our hearts filled with the knowledge that this is where we're going. With the knowledge that this day of seemingly small things will break out into a glorious new reality in which the people of God will be at rest. Isaiah is just telling the story of Revelation, isn't he? Right? What is Revelation about? The book of Revelation fundamentally is about helping you grasp the good news that the Lamb wins. Christ wins and the church then wins with Him. In the end, in the last analysis, all of the opponents of Christ and His church are defeated by God the warrior king, and the church is ushered into a new age, resplendent, glorified, and full of people. Revelation 5, 9, from every nation, tribe, people, and tongue. It's Isaiah 60. And we can be sure of this. We can be confident of this because it is Chapter 59, verses 20 and 21, it is built on and guaranteed by the work of Christ. Right, those two verses are the crucial pivot here, aren't they? The hinge on which we swing from being the subject of God's wrath to being the receiver of God's blessing. The covenant that God made with Jesus Christ that was fulfilled in His earthly ministry. Right, you see it. We're, we're thankful for how our translators distinguish between poetry and prose, aren't we? They versify that poetry and they paragraph the prose. And so just visually, you look at this passage and it's distinct. Isaiah moves from this poetic imagery of, of, of past solemn realities, this poetic imagery of glorious future realities, and here he just turns to plain language. And he says to us, you can be sure of this because it is all built on a covenant that God made with himself. It's interesting how it's phrased, isn't it? We, in verse 20, we get this promise that a Redeemer will come to Zion. And then it's as if we're brought in to eavesdrop on this intertrinitarian conversation. They were brought to eavesdrop into this heavenly council as, as the covenant of redemption is being made. Now, now, we might miss this in our English translations because not all of our pronouns are gendered, but the you in verse 21 is not the same you as in verse 1 of chapter 60. In verse 1, that's a feminine you. It's talking of the people of God encapsulated as Zion, and Zion, Jerusalem, was always spoken of as being feminine. But in verse 21, it's masculine. It's God speaking not to the people of God, but God speaking to the Redeemer. And you understand what that means? It means that the covenant 
that God has made with us, beginning of verse 22, is a covenant that is pinned not to us, but to Christ, to His work, to His obedience, and not ours. It means that by His work, filled with and empowered by the Holy Spirit, standing firm in the face of temptation, holding fast to the the Word of God and proclaiming the Word of God to any who would oppose Him or try to get Him to turn to the right or to the left of the covenantal work He had come to perform, even to the point where as He hung dying on His cross, it was the Word of God that remained on His lips. Psalm 22, the final words of Jesus that He uses to express His pain. But but you understand, in all likelihood, Jesus didn't just quote the first verse of Psalm 22. It's what we read in Matthew, Mark, but likely they just put that in there as a, as a hook, as a, as a reference. In all likelihood, as Jesus hung on His cross, He recited the whole of the psalm. And how does the psalm end? Psalm 22, verse 26, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek Him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and He rules over the nations. What is that? That's chapter 60. That those afflicted by their sin brought up and restored all the ends of the eternity to the Lord and coming before Him in worship and all of it pinned to the faithful covenantal work of Christ. Pinned to His obedience. Pinned to His faithfulness. Pinned to His commitment to the Word of God. And us simply, the grateful beneficiaries, our destiny secured because of what He did. Our confidence anchored in His finished work so that we know, we we know that this is where we're going. And that changes everything. And these days it can seem as if evil is so powerful, overwhelmingly powerful, And who are Christians? Who is the church to do anything about it? Who are the exiles to do anything about their predicament? It seemed as if evil ruled the day. That was the power of the temptations to go after the other gods, to yield to selfish desires, the temptation to go the way of the world, even just for a time, to take the heat off, to go with the current. But here Isaiah says to his readers, ancient and modern, that a glorious future awaits. A promised land is coming. And in this present moment, that future hope is to anchor our joy. Evil is powerful. But Christ is more powerful. And he who has redeemed us will bring us safely to the end. And we will enjoy the glorious fruits of his victory. Let us pray.